Hello and welcome back to another episode of Ban This Podcast. This is Drew from the future and I am so excited that you're coming back here to listen to what we've got. Uh, special shout out, special thank you to the thousands of new listeners we've gotten over the last few months. Oh my gosh, your support has been overwhelming and we very much appreciate it. Now this <laughs> this episode we've got coming up, this is actually a two-parter. You read that right. This is Raging God Boner, and he'll pick up the context for that in the episode. But essentially, Ava and I are interviewing a Mennonite. Well, a former Mennonite. This is a good friend of Ava's, really interesting guy, incredibly articulate, handsome to boot. And he's gone through a pretty transformative experience, I'd say. From being the choir worshiper, uh, choir worship leader, to uh, marrying the pastor's daughter, uh, and then finding um, that that lifestyle actually didn't jive with him. This is an incredibly interesting two-parter. We dig deep on sexuality as it relates to your upbringing, uh, what what it means to be religious or, or a deist in general. Um, what kind of social hangups, uh, even like sexist hangups come from different kinds of religions, uh, and what the undertones are around that. So again, incredibly interesting, incredibly fascinating story. This is a two parter. Trust me by the end of number one, you're going to be like, I cannot wait for number two to come out. And I promise number two will come out pretty shortly after this. So, uh, again, thank you to all the new listeners. Thank you for all the support. Everybody's been given to us. This has been a fun project that's really grown into something fantastic because of your support. And I mean, we really appreciate it. We appreciate every time you guys like this podcast. We love every time you guys write a review. So please don't stop. We, we really, really love and, and feel the love that you guys are sending back to us. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, go ahead and reach out to us, bandthispod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear back from you. Every single person who's written in so far has had great things to say, and we oh, we absolutely love hearing it. So please feel free to write in suggestions. Um, if you know somebody that we should interview, let us know who that is, because we love taking suggestions like that. Um, but I'm not going to hold you any further. Go ahead and enjoy this episode. Let me know what you think, bandthispod at gmail.com, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Enjoy. So I think the first thing I wanted to dig in with you a little bit was about how you grew up. So if someone were to ask you, what was your childhood like? What would tend to be your answer? Where would you start? Me first? Yeah. Okay. I grew up in rural central Pennsylvania. And it was, I was an only child in a town of maybe thousands and I grew up in a church environment where uh, I grew up going to church and I grew up where God was real, Jesus was God, and a lot of my purpose and identity came from that, and um, including the fact that I was homeschooled for several years as well. And so not only was the concept of God and morality um, part of my home life, per se, it was also, it immediately bled into my education. And so, um, beyond just how I felt um, as a person, I also felt like God was fully permeated through all knowledge and all reality, and anything outside of that was um, a made-up lie by some entity called man, 
or mm-hmm. some entity. Or Satan. Or Satan. Satan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, some, but some non-truth. Yeah. Some form of... God is uh, the only truth, right? That was the, the right. whole thing. Yeah. God is the only truth. And um, for some reason, which wasn't actually really explained to me, or wasn't even important, for some reason there was this anti-truth that people slash society, liberals, whatever you want to categorize that group as, created to somehow, you know, best Christians, somehow <laughs> get us. Right, um, right. And it was my job as a Christian to keep the faith, defend the faith, to worship God, <laughs> yeah. to um, actualize whatever purpose God had for my life, and to win over as many hearts and minds from the opposing force as possible. And that defined my childhood. To, to skip ahead just a little bit, in hindsight, when do you think that that started to change? How old were you when that started to change? In hindsight. Um, I, I was probably 17 when I realized that temptation, like, temptation is really real. And not only was it a... Let's put it this way. I was around 17 when I realized that there were two opposing forces inside, and that one was bad and one was good, and um, I had to take an active step every day to deny a certain aspect of who I was. Mm-hmm. And at the time, when you think of who you are, it, it, because it's framed in the context of Jesus, and it was framed in the context of the Bible being the ultimate truth, who you are was should only be the good parts or the parts that align with that particular worldview. So anything not that, even though it is you, mm-hmm. it actually, you, um, I was, my, my belief system was oriented to that was a evil, almost like a weed growing up in a garden yeah. that you had to root out at all costs. And so I, when I really feel, felt like, wow, maybe I can't control these weeds that was around 17. That's an incredible 18. way to put it. It just sort of like grows over and you can't keep going right. out and fighting back. Right. Now, and I like that you jumped into this question, Drew, because <laughs> I'm actually going to turn around and ask you the same thing. What was your childhood like? You know, if somebody asked you that, where, sure. where would you start? Um, it's so fun to hear your perspective because it's so similar to mine. Um, I grew up in, here in Northern California the whole time. We moved around every two, two and a half years. That's a pivotal piece because what that did was socially that isolated me. That mm-hmm. created uh, an, an environment where the main people that I interacted with were people in my immediate family mm-hmm. and people at the church I was going to. Those were the two only, main social outlets. So besides that, I was mostly uh, socially isolated Never really good at making friends because of it, stuff like that. Homeschooled for probably about four or five years intermittently throughout that time period. Uh, Dad was an assistant or associate pastor the entire time. So he was preaching on a regular basis. We went to church at least three times a week, which is pretty regular for us. Um, Mm -hmm. That wasn't really optional, but I was also kind of enthusiastic about it because the only kind of validation I ever got at home was for being a good Christian boy and like really like standing up and like being a representative for what a good Christian boy is supposed to be. Um, so for the most part, I was kind of stuck in that identity and attached to that identity. And it, and it, it was it was who I was because, like, like you were talking about earlier, like yeah. your identity becomes wrapped up in this belief system that's, that you don't have. It's just handed to you or forced down your throat, depending on how you look at it. And it's 
in hindsight, it's sad and it's hard to think about because basically somebody else was trying to tell me what my belief system was in a way that was destructive to my own personal identity. Yeah. And in talking about identity, um, I would love to find out when, I like that you framed it as when you started to realize that there was a conflict inside the self, but I'd love to hear about like when you figured out that there was also this conflict that you described with like the outside world, those people trying to like best Christians, um, that there was an other, and the other was bad. When was that for you? How old was it for you? When I realized that the other wasn't bad? Or no, that there was. That there was, like, that you were a way of you seeing the world, that you were different from other people, and that the way other people was oh. was, was the bad thing, or the thing to be avoided, or... I mean, for bad. me, I internalized it so well that I was so unaware that there was any other way to be, mm-hmm. and I was... I was flabbergasted by the idea of people living heathen lifestyles. I was like, why would you do that? Why would you just, you know, follow God? It just makes sense, right? So for me, it must have been like mid to late teens before I even realized that like other people on purpose don't do the thing that I do constantly. Interesting. So, but for you though, it was, you had this sense of um, disbelief that, uh, that anyone would choose a different lifestyle. Yeah. So to contrast, I... I, um, very early felt generally opposed to my upbringing. So I, I was always attracted to, um, the, the sort of outside world. So it always felt my, my sense of self was always at, at war. And I always felt a struggle where I would, for instance, just as an example, pray adamantly for God to, to remove the evil desires inside. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, even the notion of curiosity or doubt or any sexual explorations whatsoever was, I just, like, I spent so many nights on my face in the church just weeping because I felt like I was going to tear myself apart. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't think I ever had this sense of, holy crap, like, why doesn't everybody just, like, lead, lead a good life, lead a good Christian life? I, in contrast to you, I it just... It felt painful. It always felt painful, and it always felt like, um, it always felt like I was a broken Christian, mm-hmm. or, like, an inadequate Christian. I think that's something a lot of people who grow up Christian feel, that part. Because, like, even though I was the poster child for, like, what a good Christian boy was, and, like, that was most of my identity, I think the reason that was is because... I didn't know anything else, first and foremost, but, like, following that, I, I, it was a struggle to think about things in other terms. I, there's two parts. I was emotionally isolated, and the other part was I was taught master class levels of manipulation. And what I mean by that was there was always rules. There's all these rules in the Bible and everything, and in the church, those aren't always the same. And there's always these exceptions for the rules. So I was taught by my dad, who is a master class manipulator, that you can set up all the rules and make all the exemptions for yourself. So for me, it was really easy to be the poster child because I could just follow the rules, do what I'm told, and even define some of the rules. But then they don't apply to me whenever I pick and choose. And I can just kind of like nitpick the whole thing. Even though we were highly indoctrinated and it was all very specific and laid out, I can kind of skip whatever I felt like skipping sometimes. And that's super interesting to me because I think like right now, especially in our country, we're having this... Uh, movement. I, I love it. It's, it's on Twitter. They talk about empty the pews is the ha- hashtag. What is it? Uh, empty the pews. Mm. And uh, it's about the, the fact that 
uh, as somebody else had put it, the evangelical right has turned out to be a very cheap date. Like, they forgive <laughs> Donald Trump every single one of his misgivings. Mm-hmm. Um, they are just very quick to accept uh, wrong behavior or, or immoral behavior on the part of leaders, especially in adult men, uh, and then just go around and, and act like forgiveness means that you just wipe clean slate. Um, and I would love to hear about, especially because you had such this internal conflict, uh, when you started to see that, like, some of these rules, not only, you know, there were exceptions to the rules, but you watched other people kind of, like, abuse their power in that context. That's an interesting question, because I had, um, I hadn't had the experience that people would abuse the rules in the same way. Interesting. Uh, or, let's put it this way. We never, we never excused that in our, in our mm-hmm. church. Okay. And, um, however, the threat of manipulation was definitely there, but just in a different form, where um, it was where the focus was. So the same reason that I think Trump can get away with what he does with many evangelicals is because there are certain issues that have been prioritized so highly that it just completely overshadows some of the other things. And, I mean, not to go down a rabbit hole, but abortion. So if you have people who are... Um, anti-choice you you know it's framed as pro-life and it's it's such an incredibly polarizing issue that I've throughout my childhood um, Mm -hmm. my parents have voted on on that particular issue almost not not exclusively but as a very very strong bias for any candidate yeah and so you know or my you know my pastor for example would be a complete um he would be completely, uh, let's say, not generous to someone who is poor, or he would he would be um, condescending, or he would be uh, extremely, you know, prideful, condescending, or just a litany of other things that would cause someone to feel um, diminished. Right, but despite the rules, despite the rules, but the thing is, rather than feeling that the rules just didn't apply in certain circumstances, it really had to do with just framing the priority of certain things. Yeah, and so that would give them the ability to to circumvent the rules in the yeah. same way that you described. But it's still somehow matched up to our rule set. Like these are the rules we all agree on, but somehow, like clearly, there are distinctions. There are exemp- there are exceptions. Like the pastor can be a dick to somebody who's poor, even though that's not part of our rules. But it, and I think those types of things are easily accepted because they have, there's a set of rules and there's this commonly accepted uh, exceptions. So like you'd have somebody get divorced in the church, which was one of the biggest no-nos, but it was an assistant pastor and it was for the right reasons and, and she was horrible anyway, so fuck her. And, you know, you know what I mean? Like he needs to get a better wife this time. And like that More was the whole wife. Exactly. Literally those words. Yeah. More right. wife. So again, just to contrast, we didn't, if somebody got divorced in our church, it was a massive problem. Yeah, same. Um, but the thing is, if they were good enough, or if they were in the right position, or if like they had the right story behind it, the, the rules you know, can be bent and flexed. Interesting. So can you talk a little bit about what examples that you've seen of people being stigmatized? Like, I think what's interesting in the context of especially this podcast and things we try to explore is, from your perspective in what was accepted as norms for you... What was heavily stigmatized about the way other people lived? Oh, God. Okay, here we go. Yes. (laughs) Just to provide provide some context. Um, 
I, I was, we had a very small church, maybe 50 regular attendees when it was in its heyday, maybe a hundred. But, um, I was also the worship leader. I was, uh, I did a lot of youth pastoring in the sense that I wasn't the youth pastor, but I did a lot of lessons and I organized events and so forth. So you must be gay. <laughs> Those two positions that's in all of my experience, that's where the gay guys go. Hundred percent of the time. That's hilarious, but I'm no, not. Do you think it's do you think it's an overcompensation thing? I have no idea what it is, but it's always the church the, the choir leader, the, the and then the youth pastor. Yeah. I'm, I'm not gay. I have a story about that, but I'm not gay. Um, but I I was heavily involved in these positions that were highly visible. Even in a small group, you know, 50 to 100 people is still 50 to 100 people. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we were in a small, mostly white, very poor town. And what was interesting, though, is this was just about the time when the Internet was really, really becoming more and more accessible. Um, Because I think that that actually had a significant effect in this small town of exposing some of these youth to what the quote-unquote real world was, because they certainly weren't going to get on Amtrak and go to New York. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, and if they did, it would just blow their little minds, because they would they would see this world out there and feel like they just launched into Babylon. <laughs> and, like, instead of enjoying it for the was... No, it was absolutely... <laughs> saw, in fact, um, I you know, there were youth, youth trips where we went to Philadelphia, and it was like, instead of instead of saying, hey, this is interesting... There was a lot of, like, praying for the lost. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. but, but, but to get to your question, um, there, as I started talking to these kids, um, I, there were two kids who were gay in, in the youth group. And they were, you know, they pulled, they pulled me aside and said, I, I'm really scared because I'm pretty sure I'm gay. And I, like, I'm going to hell, aren't I? And I was like, oh my God, like, I don't know how to process this right now. Because again, as I was growing up, you know, from 17 to 22, let's say, I had, I had just, the analogy that I use is that I feel like I was um, an, uh, an oak tree in an, a forest full of pines. Where like in, as a sapling, you don't sort of realize that you're different, but the older you get, the more you feel uncomfortable in your environment. I'm like, I'm never going to change into one of these. And that process was happening as I was teaching the youth. And so as I was reading different books, specifically books around um, evolution and, uh, and books around theology, that I couldn't reconcile. I couldn't reconcile our dogma that being gay was an offense, such a, a terrible offense. And so when I talked to these kids, even in the context of Christianity... Mm-hmm. If Jesus died for your sins, he died for all of your sins. Even being gay, <laughs> if that's an actual sin. Right. But then I couldn't even, I couldn't, the more I dug into it, I couldn't even find any real biblical, uh, concrete rationale for the way that being gay was stigmatized in the church. Mm-hmm. And so I would start to talk to these kids and be like, hey, look, dude, I know, I know this must be weird for you because I'm about to say something that goes cross grain with everything that you've been taught, but I, you're normal. You're fine. You're okay. Bless you. And um, and then the same thing with this other kid who, if he's not working for NASA right now, I'm going to be surprised. But I mean, he was probably 14, and um, he was talking about like, you know, I'm really interested in like 
DNA and, you know, molecular biology and things like this. And I'm like, okay, man, let's go. And he's like, but the more I think about it, like that I'm reading, I'm reading about evolution and all of these processes, but like, that's not real. Like, how do I, how am I going to be a good scientist if I believe this sort of thing? And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> and so it was that's very, how far inside the, his head that it had gotten. Totally. In mine. Yeah. So it was interesting as I was relating to this like 14 year old as a 20 year old, let's say. And I was reading this book. There's a couple books that were really important to me. One was called Finding Darwin's God. Um, and that particular book was written by um, a Catholic evolutionary biologist who the first 90% of the book was essentially a 101 on evolution and why it was absolutely factual and, and completely refuting creationism. Yeah. And the last... Ten, you know, five or ten percent of the book was reconciling that with the belief in God, which, mm-hmm. in my opinion, completely fell short. So, <laughs> much maybe, to the chagrin of the well, yeah, I don't know, but like, you know, after I got finished with that book, I was like, oh my god, like, I don't know if you intended to do this, but you made me really, really call into question all of these beliefs. And this was around the time I was talking to this kid, coincidentally, and you know, I was like, hey, I think there's a pretty good chance evolution is. A viable way to look at how things happened. It doesn't answer the question of why. It doesn't even answer the question of why things exist, period. It's just, this is how life happened. Um, and it's a, it's a good working theory that seems to answer a lot of questions, and I think you should explore that. You know, and it was interesting to, because I remember one of the earlier conversations that you and I had had in our friendship was about um, this evolutionary biologist, paleontologist, uh, Stephen Jay Gould, he actually has a term for this he called non-intersecting magisterium. That he's like, you know, these two areas of study, they cannot touch each other because they were never meant to. Mm-hmm. And I think, in, especially in the context of this conversation, it's interesting because inside you, you have like these two non-intersecting magisterium, but they're, you feel that one is grading on the other. And I like that you talked about how, you know, you're trying to help this kid feel a little bit less pressure, but I think it sounds like you instead held that stress inside yourself. Absolutely. Like you internalized everything that you were trying to take off of his shoulders and put it on your own. Can you tell me about when you finally broke? Yeah, so what ended up happening was I had to tell, and this is another facet to the story, is that I was married to the pastor's daughter. Oh my gosh, it's so much juicier. <laughs> there's, there's, there's layers. There's Did you of, have her baby too? No, okay. Um, but, um, so, we would, we had, I had to call a meeting, which I didn't know if it was a clergy meeting or a family meeting. Was, <laughs> Same I, thing. I had to say, hey guys, like, I don't really think, I don't believe that we, need, we can hold this hard line anymore. Yeah. Um, I, I, I said, look, I'm a Christian. I believe in redemption and the afterlife and all of these things that I would eventually later completely denounce. <laughs> but in that context, in that context, I could not hold these two opposing um, belief systems that if you look, if you actually look at the Bible and you evaluate it it, um, for what it was, there was another really great book I read called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, which talked about how the Bible in its time was actually a pretty progressive book when you looked at it in the context mm-hmm. of when it was written. Yeah. Its vector is progressive. But if you put an anchor in it, 
and then and then can, and society keeps moving, that vector will start to point the other direction. <laughs> I need to read this book. I feel like because yeah, like my, one of my most fascinating things about women in the Bible and in, in my context would be most in Torah, but especially sometimes even in the New Testament. Um, that the women were sort of these these plot development characters who were supposed to be subversive on purpose. Mm. Like, they were supposed to violate some norm like to Ray push society ahead. Right. Yeah, like, you would trick a man into giving the wrong child the birthright. Or <laughs> she would trick uh, Pharaoh into raising the wrong son uh, so that society could in some way be fixed or move ahead. Mm. And so... That like Moses' daughters raping him, getting him drunk and raping him. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Do you not remember that <laughs> Don't part? Don't remember this part. Oh, okay. Like, That's in there. Oh, my goodness. Two of them. So, <laughs> then for you, Drew, when did you break? Like, when did when did you realize that something had to give? For me, it was... <laughs> I'm a late bloomer through and through. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it was... Um, habitually, I went to church uh, one to three times a week. Uh, three times a week early on, and it got down to once a week when I was became, like, 18, 19. Mm-hmm. But from 19 to 24, I basically did a slow, hard reset on everything I believe. I was out of the church. I was in San Jose, so I was, you know, 100 miles away from family. Um, basically, what I did was I took that opportunity to redefine everything I believed and just re- and question every little bit, one bit at a time. What was the catalyst, if anything? There wasn't a catalyst. It was just being outside of the regular... Distance? Uh, it was distance. It was purely distance. It was getting outside of that, that norm, outside of that habitual interaction with the same people, and getting a whole new social circle. Ah, because my only social sorry. circle, remember, was family and church. So So you had new people. And I, I think this draws back to a question I think we were talking about uh, before we were drinking and eating and hanging out, which is, at what point did you realize that no matter where the distance was, uh, if your parents weren't around, if your community wasn't around... When did you realize that you could do things that were stigmatized or taboo and then no one was really going to find out? Mm-hmm. Well, for me, it was when I moved to San Francisco when I was 30. 30? 30. Holy shit. Yeah. So the, the second half, or the second act of this was um, I was married for 10 years. Hey. And I got married when I turned 20. Mm-hmm. And to the pastor's daughter. And in that process, I also started a business that allowed me to travel to cities for work. And in doing that, we also had talent that was not not Christian talent, and from out of central Pennsylvania. And so I was exposed to this this outside world. And over time, I realized that these perspectives made more sense than the perspective that I was raised within. So that it increased that conflict. Um, and the main event that really, um, it was a very visceral, limbic event, and it was I cheated on my wife um, with somebody that was close to me professionally. And so in doing How that, old were you at this point? That's a good question. I, would, I want to say 26. So halfway into your marriage? A little more than halfway. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it was so, it was phenomenal sex. <laughs> <laughs> Probably for the first time ever, right? Yeah, first time ever. So, yeah, I was a virgin before I got married. Yeah. And then I got married, and the sex was not great. Of course. Um, for so many reasons. And I'm virgins like, suck at sex. That's the main reason. Virgins suck at sex. <laughs> also. You're supposed to suck. Uh, yeah. Yes, but also, um, 
there's a, there's there's many factors that like you know my ex-wife and I were just not sexually compatible. We were not compatible, just as humans. Yeah. And to no fault of either of us. And I'm hope you I were hope fucking kids when you got married. Correct. Yeah. And grow up. A certain yeah. fundamental piece of both of us, though, where we were um, absolutely on different paths, on different vectors. That even then you could tell. Yes, we were children when we got married, but at the same time, someone could have predicted that. Someone could have seen that situation like, oh, this is not going to work. Um, so there was a lot of terrible um, internal conflict through those years, with that, the first few years of marriage, where, I mean, I would do these, all, I mean, I was, first of all, porn all the time. Um, I would do these <laughs> crazy um, webcam things when my ex-wife was asleep. Like? Uh, like, from, like, 1 to 3 a.m., I would, uh, I had this webcam community that I would get naked with, and we would play, like, strip poker and jerk off online to try to get some sort of, like, sexual satisfaction without crossing the line sure, of sure. sleeping with someone technically, else. Technically, yeah. Yeah, technically, <laughs> we're fine. But can you imagine the moral conflict of doing that and literally leading worship on Sunday, having to sort of pray yourself into a sense of repentance from Saturday night. Yeah. And, and I remember the first time you told me about this, I just was so taken aback. So to put this in context again, I've met so many people who either they came to, you know, like the kink community or the poly community, and that webcam thing is so common. <laughs> like it's, it's startlingly really? oversampled, the number huh. of people who have told me that they were on these um, sort of up all night, like naked, anything goes, right. off topic type webcam forums. And it was extremely common. I think for, for a while, the internet did afford this sort of outlet of sexual energy and also just like a desire to, um, I mean, escape is putting it so crudely, but it's just like a way that you could be, you know, like experience the titillation of exploration somehow. You can almost let loose in a way. Yeah. It's, it's a way of reconciling two irreconcilable things because yeah. of how ambiguous and unprecedented this connection ha- you had what? Yeah. Where in the Bible did it say thou shalt not webcam a bunch of people? <laughs> <laughs> like, I challenge you to find that verse. <laughs> what did Jesus say about naked webcam masturbation? Right. I'm going to have to look that up. Don't lust after I'm your neighbor's just, wife? I don't know. I'm just a Jewish girl. I don't know the New Testament that well. Uh, but I think you had also said that this was also a forum where people actually did make genuine friendships and that you know, it was in this context of, it didn't all have to be lascivious and sexual. It was also, uh, you know, camaraderie. commiseration. Yeah. Camaraderie, but commiseration. That makes sense, because yeah. in, a, in a way, you can put the mask on or take the mask off, whatever the analogy is. Right. Between each other, you guys could be real. You're going to indulge in your actual desires. <laughs> and, and that is something that I think if people sort of just heard about it, like, we all, uh, I know that the first time that I heard that from you, I was surprised in a good way. Because it reminded me a lot of, uh, you know, I was I was too young when I started exploring things like kink communities. But it's like you find too, online what's too young. Too young. <laughs> There's um, no such thing as too young. <laughs> too young is is getting a fake ID when you're 14 and going to parties you shouldn't be going to and being on. Oh, topic it's, it started before and, that. Yeah, <laughs> but I think it's 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 that thing that I think would be surprising people, which is that while the entry point is something you know very sexual. You find instead that there are people who are like working on themselves, yeah. or that they're they're 
trying to become more comfortable oh with my God. something. And can, so, so can you tell me a little bit about that, like that sense of self and how it changed for you over time? Yeah, I'm, I'm to, to, so this is driving to this, you know, the magic number 30 when, when it did change. But <clears throat> throughout that time, it was an absolute struggle. Your, your original question was, when did you feel like it was okay to do these things? And the answer is not until I was 30. Yeah. And throughout that process, it was a sense of perpetual um, negotiation with myself and my own sense of morality and all of that. But it's also one of those things, and I, I think that people struggle with this all the time, where you know the answer, you just don't admit it to yourself. Yeah. You know you're going to, you know you have a certain posture intellectually, but you just can't ascend to it, and so you do everything to lie to yourself until you finally can't anymore. But you're trying to conserve your social dynamic. You're trying to conserve your position in the social hierarchy, because most of religion is not about the religion or God, it's about the, so, the, the social element. I can see that, but for me, it was just self-preservation. Because I was such a good liar, that everybody, no one had a, had a, a clue. I could I could swindle anybody at the church into thinking everything was fine. I, that resonates so much to me. And an absolute like the social thing I had in the bag. I felt I felt like I was an absolute sociopath for, for many years. But what I'm saying is, you instead of living your true self, you had to put on that mask absolutely in order to preserve that social situation. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but again, I also didn't feel like my true, true self was like, you know, some pathetic guy on the couch masturbating to like a webcam. Yeah. Like the problem was it was reconciling these two sides right. and doing so in a way that was faux meeting this, you know, again, it totally invented moral standard and not actually fucking someone else until I did. And then I realized, oh my god, <laughs> sex is great. <laughs> it doesn't have to be boring and sex shitty. Is awesome. And Drew, did you? Oh, sorry. Well, just just not only that, but like once you once you cross that Rubicon, you cannot go back. Not only not so. When did the webcam thing? Uh huh. I always told myself this was um, temporary, total lie. But I was like, I'm gonna get my you know get this fixed. But I'm gonna I'm gonna quit. Just like any other addiction. It's something that you have to fix. You yeah. fix, yeah. right. Yeah. But once I had this experience with this person, not only did I realize, like, wow, you can be sexually compatible with someone, and it's bliss and easy and amazing. But also, I'm, I also, A, seriously corrupted myself morally. Because I also figured that, like, once you have sex with someone else, you're an adulterer, and it's almost like you can never get back to 100% because that's your new identity you're, you're, you're done yeah. once you once you drive a nail into a piece of wood there's a hole there and like it's forever yeah so I'm I find this fascinating to listen to from this perspective as well just because like both of you live this from the inside out uh, and, and you know I, I grew up in Texas and, and so my experience of, of evangelical morality is this like idea that you drive a nail into a hole and there's always a hole there there's like this forgiveness but there's permanence yeah, you know, like you are forgiven, but you're still stained. Right. And they 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 termed it in a uh, we would have these like abstinence only assemblies where they would get some I'm re- I'm sure religious church group to come in and talk to us about like why we should keep our virginity abstinence only, and they they phrased it as uh, that for every petal, uh, so every time you have sex, you're a beautiful flower, especially if you're a woman, you're a gorgeous beautiful flower. They take a flower <laughs> out, a rose. And there you are, this white rose. And then every time you have sex with somebody, pluck, there yeah. goes a petal off the flower. Yeah. And then they would just pick one of them off one at a time and be like, look how ugly this flower is now. Right. You don't want to be this way. You don't want to be ugly. You want to be beautiful. 
And so... Talk about massive misogyny. Yes, extraordinary <laughs> misogyny. But then to hear from, from both of you that that experience, it does actually even carry through to men. Oh, 100%. Like, big time. Yeah, and that's, that's such a, a mind fuck to me because this idea is that, you know, especially <laughs> that, that you have to like cover your body lest you be tempting to men and that like all sin by men is the cause, like women's problem. Like women <laughs> yes. are the ones so, who cause it. Riddle me this. Now the Apostle Paul said essentially advocated against marriage in the New Testament. Tell me more. How so? He said, it's better for you not to marry. Yeah. And it's been several years since I quoted this, but it was in, I don't know, somewhere in Corinthians or Ephesians or something, um, where he essentially said, if you can, don't get married. It's sort of a distraction. But don't have sex unless you're married. <laughs> like, right. fuck yeah. you, Paul. So don't have sex. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Really no, appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's a certain sense where, like, I would, you know, I was like, I really want to have sex, but I also don't want to get married. Like, it just was an irreconcilable construct. We have to go back to something, because you said that you were a virgin until you got married at 20. Mm-hmm. You were a virgin until 20? Correct. That's hard to... Okay, so now I want to dig into this especially. <laughs> okay, so we've gotten around self, and I love segueing into to how that affected your view of sex, because... You had mentioned briefly on a prior episode of this uh, this actual podcast that you had been um, admonished for having sex by your parents in the context of the fact that you should not have had sex before marriage and, and all oh, that. How old that. were you? Tell us more. <laughs> I first started playing around with masturbation at like 12. And I felt guilty about masturbation until I was 19. Same. At least until I was 19 or 20. <laughs> guilty about it every single time. Just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Like, sad mess. Anyway, immediately, like, done, on my knees, praying for forgiveness. <laughs> started looking at porn at, like, 14, 15. And then I started getting publicly shamed by my parents about porn and masturbation, both in front of other family members and then in front of How some church members. My, <laughs> so my dad is a techie guy. Oh, no. And he... So I cleared, I cleared the history. I cleared all the things I could, right? And he went back into the image cache for some of the websites that I went to and like went deep into our browser history. Not our browser history, because I deleted a lot of shit too. Oh, he cookies went, and shit. He went far, no, he, it wasn't even cookies. He went past that into something else. And he was like, look at this image. I was like, oh God. Look at this image. I was like, oh God. You know what I mean? He's <laughs> like, you've seen everything I've seen and you're not masturbating? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so he started shaming me about that regularly because I wasn't I didn't stop when you say publicly what, how publicly like semi public semi privately so like uh, in front of family members like immediate family members uh, extended family members in front of some church members stuff if like that if it's okay for you to share can you describe some of the things that you said <sighs> or were there key like like phrases or was he like you know that those those sort of catchphrases I always find that are interesting that like impure mm. thoughts or like right. whatever to not act godly. The main bit was that, um, one, I wasn't um, being a good representative for what I should be doing. Mm-hmm. That was the main bit. The other bit was that this type, this behavior will send me to hell, and if I continue this behavior, I will only become more depraved. Mm-hmm. It wasn't wrong. Um, <laughs> but that's just because it was already inside of me. <laughs> um, but uh, the majority of it was around... Congratulations, now you're going to go to hell based on this. And every single time you masturbate, you're going to go to hell until you ask for forgiveness. Interesting. So there's there's um, there's the punishment aspect where it's like the threatening of hell. 
Um, but but you, you know that like classic um, you know trope where your parents are I'm not mad I'm just disappointed. Oh right. Constantly. So but I, yeah, I feel yeah. like you get that from Jesus a little bit. Jesus never gets mad. My, my Except parents, when he flipped over the tables. And here's the thing. Yeah. My parents never taught me that I was going to go to hell because I messed with... I, mm. I was taught that I was. once saved, always saved. But Jesus was going to be so disappointed. And like really? me, then I'm almost like stung worse. Because it was like... <laughs> like he's just going to sit there and like cross one sandaled foot over the other. No, you know what it actually was? It was like, Jesus died for that sin. How dare you? Right. How, like, how dare you cheapen that sacrifice? Mm. So, it, yeah. yeah it's very was, emotional. It was very emotional. Wow. It was almost... It, so hell, as a concept, was interesting because it was so future tense. But this particular amount of shaming, you know, like when, when you're, you know, when your parents like admonish you in front of your family members it was an immediate sense of just like oh like why would you why would you do that to me i feel like so i have no siblings and my parents never shamed me in front of family members but there was pervasive ethos of how like how disrespectful you're being to such a profound sacrifice and me being the the absolute self-flagellation master like I, i would constantly feel like I was causing this being who I thought was absolutely real and absolutely God and actually died for my sins, such pain and such disappointment that like I was causing a lot of that, um, tor- like torment on myself. So it was, so it's an interesting contrast because I'm, it's not about the future. It's not even about hell. It's about how much pain you can cause right now for this thing that you did. That's completely natural. And that's where I think I would love to, to dig in even a little bit more. It's because that conveys to me something that is extraordinarily, if you really view it in its best form, extraordinarily Christian, is to empathy. That you feel this like empathic need to, to sympathize with or consider the feelings of another being. I wasn't raised that way. And there are some forms of Christianity that are not that way. Yeah. And, and I think... Do you think that that was something that other people in your church believed, or was that something just intrinsic to the good in you? Uh, I think our ethos was very empathetic as a church, and I think it's because we were so poor. So everyone was just like so so poor, Um, and so what's really sort of terribly ironic though was our pastor came from a very wealthy background. He had run a very successful business and was. A millionaire, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so he would have this house with a pool and, like, all of the things and a hot tub and whatever. Like all good pastors do. But but the rest of the church was absolute, um, like, destitute. Well, what about giving your riches to the poor? Isn't that a... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I could definitely digress there, for sure. But the point is that um, the the entire community as a church was very uh, empathy-driven. Like we were like when we did have when somebody needed a thing, everyone passed the plate and everyone was very quick to give and very quick to support. And it was like a very interesting sense of community there where ethics or sorry, not ethics, empathy was the was a very core um, value. And so that did translate into my personal values of like yeah. causing disappointment to Jesus. I'm actually really interested though, Drew, if you don't if you don't believe that or if you don't um, if you had a different experience where you didn't feel like your Christianity was surrounding the concept of empathy as a core value, how can you can you elaborate on that a little bit about how that worked? Well, because Jesus was super empathetic. 
Yeah, like what was your, I guess your family and your community's Christianity, what do you think were the values you were in? So this first and foremost comes from my family. Because yes. this is the family's version of the Bible. Which I, sure. I later learned that there's the Bible as I read it. I read it four or five times front to back. I read mm-hmm. specific parts like a lot more than that. But like front to back about five, four or five times. Um, what I found was that what was written in the Bible versus what was taught as doctrine were two very different things. 100%. Family taught one thing. Church taught another thing. Uh, and the Bible taught something else. Yes. The Bible taught a lot of conflicting things. But the main, the main core piece of my family theology was um, judgment, um, condemning people for their mis, their mis, um, misactions, you know, their misdeeds, and correction. So it wasn't about rewarding what's good. It wasn't about um, God's love. It was more about pointing out what other people are doing wrong, calling them out on that, and telling them what, what, how they're fucking up. What need do you feel like they were fulfilling by adhering to that value system? Like what people are driven by needs, you know. Like <laughs> I, I attach to that view of anything—politics, Christianity, my view on how people should be managed at work—because I'm fulfilling a need personally. Do you feel like your parents had a need for something that was fulfilled with that worldview? My dad and his parents, to this day, both, all three of them, maintain. At most, one friendship each. Meaning that these are people who don't, like, really surround themselves... Attachments. Yeah, they don't form attachments very easily. They're fine with being, like, very alone. They're fine with, like, isolating each other and, you know, the friends and family, everything like that. So for them, there's not a big need to be social. There's not a big need to relate to people. There's not a big need to create circles. There's, There's more of this, I'm better than you, so, you know bow to me. Yeah. And and for my grandparents, they grew up, they came from abject poverty, so that never worked out for them. Yeah. But my dad, starting out in crazy poverty, was able to make a massive life for himself by basically being a borderline sociopath. Yeah. I mean, he only has one friend that he sees every like three or four years, and that's like his whole life, but the thing is he has all these other structures of people who are subordinate to him, and he's able to like force them to do things and, and really dictate. You were talking about earlier, and this really resonated with me, there's three words that really stuck out. Good, bad, and should. Like, he can, he, if he labels what's good and what's bad, he has such a powerful voice, he's, he, he has a commanding presence, and, and people start to, like, especially sheepish people, easily follow him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If he says something's bad and you do something bad, he's going to call you out on that, and now there's public shame, and now he's even more powerful, but he's even less relatable. You know what I mean? Ugh. And, and, and that's, that comes with layers of should. You should do this. You should do that. These are the things you should do. These are the things you shouldn't do. Not based on actual biblical stuff, but just based on his doctrine. And that, that translated to uh, theology. That translated to the home life. That translated to, like, friendships, interdependence, all that stuff. And, you know, it seems like some of that resonated for you. Can you talk a little bit about what that was? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely the concept that people in general at least it's been my observation, don't like to think too hard about pretty much anything. Yeah. Or efficiency machines, yeah. both physically and mentally. Yeah. And when you are, when you have something laid out for you, most people, and even, even, even people who are, say, more thoughtful, um, find it's, it's a struggle to not just follow along. And the thing is, when you sort of quantize the Bible into these really digestible chunks of doctrine, yeah. 
why wouldn't you just follow along with that? Because it's hard to read the Bible from cover to cover, and it's hard to evaluate your own perspective on that. And so, but if somebody throws it at your face, instead of fighting it or figuring out the truth, you're just going to be like, yeah, that. You're just going to agree. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And especially when it provides you with a certain sense of comfort or safety. Yeah. Which yeah. is also another need that everyone has. Everybody has. And yeah. so if you can find a sense of safety in what your pastor is telling you, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you yeah. just, just be okay with that? Um, and so it takes a lot of... Um, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, but like it takes a ton of um, resolve and, yeah. and, and courage to, to say, no, I actually don't believe this, and I'm going to launch out on this new endeavor of thought that may or may not work out for me. Um, and, that's, and, and that's part of the reason that I think I, a lot of pastors, your dad included, are, are, have such power. Because they're backed by this thing that is is so, so powerful from a mental framework standpoint. And so few people read up on that. And, so few, and it's hard <laughs> to read up on it. It's yeah. hard to read. It's almost like, you know, um, I'm, in, I'm in tech, so it's, I'm, a, I'm a little bit more, um, I understand how computers and the internet and all that works, but I can, I can see how somebody can be like, how phishing emails work. You know what I mean? Or, yeah. or even how people be like, yeah, you know, you just tell you something about your computer or about something and it's just you have to take them at face value because the, to contradict them would require so much study and, and yeah. you're just like I have yeah. no choice right now. I either yeah. I either have to take 10 hours and validate what you said was true yeah. or I take you at face value right. and it's much easier to evaluate you as a person even if it takes an hour for me to make a moral judgment on you as a person than take the 10 hours and validate the truth of what you just said yeah. and I think that happens with pastors all the time and, Here, and here's the best him. part about my dad's pastoring style. When he's at the pulpit, he only preaches peace and love. But the, everybody wow. knows him personally. Everybody knows him personally knows that he is the guy who says, this is right, this is wrong, you're doing right, you're doing wrong. Now, and, and that's a common feature of people who I think, we sometimes overdiagnose, but that we refer to as sociopaths. Um, they have a tendency to architect their world around for me or against me. Mm-hmm. And they, they carve their world into these neat little chunks. And for a lot of folks, like you said, it would take a long time to dispute what's in one of those categories. Right. And so people tend to then adhere to the person that has a very definitive view. Yeah. Because why would I choose the harder life where it takes a long time to figure out all my decisions? Mm-hmm. I would rather have this easy life where things feel natural or dictated for me. Yes. And I would love then to dig into separating from that and how isolating it can feel, reorganizing your view of society. So to answer your question, I, I started feeling like th- this smorgasbord of experience was available to me when I turned 30. Yeah. I, I got divorced. I sold my company. I moved to San Francisco in the span of a couple months. Every, every earthly possession was gone. I moved here and I started brand new. And not a, like it was a it was a physical microcosm of the uh, of my entire worldview. I left everything behind, and it was both amazingly freeing to know that I could do literally anything, and it has no no actual moral implication except for what I, I give to it. Um, but it was it's really uncomfortable, and it's really um, there's a lot of cognitive overhead to pretty much any decision you make because you can't rely on that moral framework. And so it's incredibly unsettling to say, hey, 
I'm going to go try this thing out because you, A, you're not really sure how it's going to fit with your moral compass after you do it. But also you don't really know, like, is this going to damage me on, on any level? Is this going to be positive or negative or how is this going to affect my trajectory? And that's something that you used to use to make decisions all the time. It's like the moral weight. Of Correct. Everything. Absolutely. And in fact, um, you and I were talking before we mm-hmm. started recording about one of the hallmarks of Christianity as I grew up was that every single decision had a moral weight. And I think what was the, the great um, icon of that was the what would Jesus do bracelets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like literally, like should we should we go to Chick-fil-A? Sure, absolutely, because you know, they because Jesus would. Or whatever. Like literally yeah. should what do we have for dinner? Should we go to this restaurant in this part of town? Do we witness to this guy or not? Like everything you did had a moral weight to it. And when you remove completely remove all moral fabric, all moral framework. You get rid of the good, bad thing. Good and bad. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it causes you to move very slowly because every single, every time you take a footstep, it's got to be so deliberate. Really? For me, it was. For oh. me, I had, like when I moved here, um, I mean, I, yeah, I was a slut, and I also, like, I also did, I did a ton of It's kind of, of the San Francisco thing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, sure, you come here and you try stuff. You slut it up a bit, yeah. yeah. but the problem was I also had a certain amount of trepidation, because I was, I was 30, mm-hmm. and also, you know, yes, I, I would, I would say I was still a child, but at the same time, I, I was intelligent enough to know that my decisions have, um, consequences. And so, I mean, I experimented in many ways, but at the same time, I was like, because I was so uh, such a rule follower in this particular previous construct, I need to be very intentional about what I can, what my new construct looks like. And so I wasn't. I, I mean, you and I, I think, judging from your smirk, <laughs> a different experience. Yes. But I was I was a little more deliberate with each step um, because I didn't want to. I mean, I, I was realizing how I was getting older. And I was also realizing, like, in my 30s, I'm doing the things you're supposed to do in your 20s. So everyone else around me has a decade of advantage. And so I felt like I I was working against time so that I didn't want to make certain decisions that set me back even a month or two. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. And then, so, compared to his experience then, Drew, how would you say that you decided to (laughs) open up your worldview? So... I'm going to go all the way back to 16, because that's when I started fucking. I started, started sleeping with this girl, Melissa, and that, at 16, and it's 100% against the rules, right? But and, I, and my dad called me out on a couple times. I felt ashamed about masturbation, but fucking, oh, that was just right. <laughs> and the whole way I justified it was like, I'm going to marry this woman. I'm going to marry this And we dated oh, for three interesting. years. We dated for three years. I was like, this isn't a problem. I'm going to marry her. No big deal. Uh, but the thing is, at 19, when I moved to San Jose... Not marrying her, and I'm now I'm out there. I've already had the sex, you know what I mean? I'm already going to hell. So for me, the 19 to 24 period, what I did was I basically took every little belief that I had, every little, you know, the whole belief system that I was given, I broke it down in all these chunks, and I, I got rid of the stuff that I actually didn't believe myself, and I created new philosophies or new ideologies around what I actually believed myself personally. How did you figure that out? Uh, it was a shit ton of reading, a lot of philosophy, a lot of um, introspection, a lot of challenging my beliefs. A lot of actually, the biggest the biggest piece was reading all the other religious books. I read the Torah, I read the Book of Mormon, 
I went to a lot of other kinds of churches. And basically what I did was I mapped out all the different manipulation styles of all the religions, and they were all exactly the same. And I was like, oh, this is a whole, like, uh, it's a, a set. It's a what's, manipulation set. What's very fascinating to hear from both of you so far is that both of you have these, like, methodical frameworks for the way that you broke down your systems, your worldview, what made sense in your moral framework. I feel almost like an alien coming to Earth right now because, you know, like, I grew up Jewish, but I grew up, like, my, Reformed Judaism is the most common form of Judaism on the planet, uh-huh. um, much as people try to paint it as being somehow more liberal or exceptional in some way, whatever it's been since the 1960s, we're allowed to consider it. Um, but that Arguably these, the best religion ever. It's wonderful <laughs> in that, like, all of these things are sort of like a moot point. You... You grew up without, I don't have hell. There's no such thing as hell. I don't have... And you're taught to question things. We're taught to question things. Like, all these things... Not taught to question things. All these things that you're talking about, we have a big old book where a bunch of elderly men did it. It's called Talmud. And, you know, even though they're very conservative men, they still, like, were like, well, these two things don't line up. These two parts of the Torah, they don't make sense next to each other. Let's argue about them. Uh, And that especially one thing that sticks out for me is that we, I know even the Orthodox stigmatize sex. However, we don't really have a, a, a doctrinaire admonition against premarital sex. Hmm. And so there's this whole thing that's sort of <laughs> taken out. Like, yeah. for me, like, like PIV sex, because it's not specifically forbidden, held very little appeal. Mm. It's very, you know, I'm like, Versus me that get pregnant or yeah. a disease, <laughs> and it doesn't seem like it makes sense. So there's, like, no real pull for it for me. Like, I didn't think about it all the time. Um... And I think just, like, hearing for both of you how your relationship to sex changed over time, like, I would say, just from, from the alien's view looking down to Earth, like, yeah, forbidding it very much changed the way that you relate to sex. Like, and that's, that's so interesting to hear all of the lead-up up to that point, <laughs> like, that, there's, that there's, there is a breaking, like, you know, you, in case of emergency fuckery, break glass, like, <laughs> and that it totally changes the way that it's viewed as desirable or... Yeah. You know, but so. there's layers on top of that because yeah. I never received any form of sexual education ever. Not at church, not at school, oh, not man. at home. So the first time I used a condom was like 21 or 22. No, and you were having sex with this girl. What the fuck did you do? Well, it was, her and I were the only people having sex with, and it was our first time from like 16 to 19. Yeah, but like, like how did you know? But then, well, she was on the pill the whole time. Oh, okay. Her mom so put her on the pill at 14. Oh, smart woman. Yeah. God, also a fucked up woman, but like that's why. We no, 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 sex. no. Like if nothing else, like she, you know, one of the biggest things that they said that you can do for for a child yeah. is not getting pregnant is one of the most yes. lifetime out changing. Not things getting pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. Outcome changing things. Hormones at fourteen, maybe a little bit of a different story, but not getting, pregnant, getting pregnant. Not getting yeah. pregnant. Definitely the best thing you can do for yeah. your daughter. I have a question for you. Um, it did sound like you had a really methodical way that you approached resolving your new worldview. Right. Um, but you had mentioned mm-hmm. you know, that there was a sort of, you had viewed both of us as being very methodical. Yeah. I actually don't see my, I mean, I see myself as general methodical person, but my approach was very limbic, very like emotional feeling mm. oriented. Um, so the question I have for you, Drew, is can you give me one or two or three, what are some of the, like... Things that you tried and failed at that helped form your worldview. In, in not necessarily the things that you read and were like, hey, you know, this makes sense or doesn't make sense intellectually, 
But what are the things you were like, hey, I'm going to give this a try. Holy shit, this sucks, and I'm not <laughs> doing it again. I think the biggest one for me was, and it's only really in hindsight, because in the moment, I, I struggle with it. But for the most part, the biggest one for me was good and bad, that whole dichotomy. Because what I ended up doing was I ended up, I was taught a lot of things were bad, right? So yeah. lying is bad, cheating, you know, like having sex is bad, or, you know, like... All these different things are bad, right? Inherently, in a, by doing them, they are bad. And and I realized, maybe this isn't as concrete as what you're looking for, but what I realized was when you lie to somebody, what you're doing is you're, you're trying to mislead them, right? Mm-hmm. That's one version of lying. But another thing was I would tell something that I think, think is true and somebody else would call me a liar. And I realized that the lie wasn't so much in what you were saying as – the way, like your intent, it was all about intent. And therefore the good and bad was around intent. And if you change your intent, the good and bad change. So the whole good and bad thing just didn't fit in a lot of situations where I was told it did fit. And I realized there was not so much such a thing as good and bad, so much as there are actions and there are the results of those actions. There's communication and there's the way that communication is received. Mm -hmm. There's like this whole, it's not so black and white, it's not so objective. but one concrete way that that actually manifests itself was, let's see. Let me give you an example of mine. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm sure you you will likely have a similar experience. But when I first started to experiment sexually and have, you know, multiple partners or at least, like, date and realize that having sex was part of the dating experience and not just something you reserved for your future wife, um, I realized that there was an ethic around sex that I'd never been taught. Such that, you know, before, my the ethic around sex was you didn't have it unless you were married. Yeah, totally. And so... And so because uh, it's something inside the sanctity of marriage. Correct. Yeah, yeah. But now that I realize that, you know, that moral construct is something I no longer subscribe to, I had to sort of create a new ethic around sex. Totally. Right? And so, um, and so like, I realized that I had to figure this out, and, and the, the benchmark for that was not hurting other people. Yeah. So yeah. I realized Because that- the intent of the original ethics was maybe perhaps to not hurt other people or not damage them in some sort of way or to be Christian or religious or, you know, some something. But, like, in the absence of that, you had to develop a new kind of philosophy, right? Right. And so what that was to me, though, well, I didn't realize that certain actions would hurt other people. Because I was, a, I was an actual child in certain aspects of my thought process because I'd never had to experiment or was never taught those things. So I had, um, I had a you know, relationship where that was really, um, the sex was bad, and I didn't really know how to communicate that. And so um, in breaking up, I, I basically it was a terrible breakup. Because You're talking about the divorce? No, no, no. Oh, this okay. post-divorce. Okay. I had a relationship with a woman... We weren't sexually compatible. Mm. Um, but so part of one of the lessons I learned around sex was that it's important part of it's an important part of your relationship. Mm-hmm. Not only is it an important part of your relationship, but you need to be honest and communicative when it isn't working. And it's actually not it's not um, it's not a bad thing to be honest with yourself that you're not sexually compatible with someone. Yeah. And and to have that as actually grounds for a relationship not working. Yeah. Because the longer that you extend that, the more resentment builds, the more you start creating issues that shouldn't be there, that get in the way of a relationship, that damage someone emotionally, 
over time. And so it's really unethical for me to sort of pretend that this relationship was okay. And, to, and um, with this particular person that I was thinking of, I, you know, we never actually said we were exclusive, but we were. But then I started having sex with other people, mm. and she certainly wasn't. It was just a really bad situation. So when everything came to a head, I ended up hurting her, I ended up hurting other people, and I also ended up feeling really shitty myself. You hurt yourself, yeah. And so I started, I learned from that experience, and I said, hey, this is a new ethic that not only um, sort of should define part of my new set of, my new morality, but it also, you know, it's a, it's a lesson that, I could only learn in this particular context. Yeah. Or if my parents somehow, you know, taught this to me in an, in a non-theistic context, which obviously I didn't have the opportunity to. So I couldn't. No, no amount of like philosophical like study or reasoning or religious studies or whatever could have prepared me for this. And I'm sure that there are books out there. I mean that give you guidelines on this line yeah. but I didn't read those and no one told me to read those ethics for the real world I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and that's when, when I pull back on everything that we've talked about and everything that you know in its best form religious belief is supposed to be about and that we deal with all the time especially in our context even in having I think like sexual relationships or behaving in a way that, that people would find very very controversial or lascivious or whatever it's about empathy. Yeah. And and I feel like expecting that to come from religious sources is not always as unreasonable as it, as it seems to people. Like when you're when you're trying to pull back into this idea of like why people adhere to like I I'm, I'm very concerned about like why people tell stories that they tell. Like to me like the Bible like you said it's a very progressive document for its time. I'm very concerned all the time with like why did people who lived during that time think it was important to tell this story? Right. And I think that that comes up actually more closely for me now as an adult when I look at them critically, even in the context of things that were never discussed, like sex, where it's like, why did people decide that it was important to value what happens to poor people or to like think about conflict between perceived nations or to think about like how people are coming of age and whether or not like certain values will be important to them. And I would say then to, to both of you, especially in the context of this, like new ethics or new morality, what's one thing from how you grew up, despite how traumatic it may have been or how much it doesn't resonate with you in general, that you think was important from how you grew up that you carry with you now as an adult? Oh shit, I got a good one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for me, one of the things, this goes back to what you were talking about earlier too, for me, one of the biggest things was that from an early age, I conflated good and bad with easy and hard. And I'll explain. What I mean was the things that were good were easy for me because basically I had people in my life who um, created an environment where the, quote, good things to do were rewarded and they were like recognized and they were uh, praised. So to, to say to my friend, oh, you're going to hell because you did that thing – that was a celebrated thing. And for me, that was easy because I wasn't really taught empathy. So yeah. I didn't really care about how he felt about it. Uh, I didn't mind like calling him out on it. And for, you know, for all intents and purposes, that was a good thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So for me, a lot of the times, the, the, the biggest struggle moving from that to like, you know, being a real person in the world, one of the problems was that I had to now start doing things that were hard 
that I now personally consider to be good. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> and so, 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 so one of the things I consider to be very important right now and in relating to other people mm-hmm. is to be honest, not to be, not, not to tell them everything, not to like, just like waterfall all your feelings, yeah. not to like blow stuff on them, not to like give them half-assed thoughts, but to be like genuinely honest and open with a person in a way that feels real and legitimate, right? And so what happens is that, like you were talking about with sex, we're talking about with um, multiple partners, like that's a hard conversation to have and be like, are we exclusive? Are we not exclusive? Like, yeah. are you sleeping with somebody else? Are you not? Like, These are the things I like. These are the things I don't like. Fucking hard conversations, right? Yeah. But the thing is, right now, I consider that to be so important and still so challenging, but that's a big part of who I am and what I believe in, you know? And I, you know what? I'll be really honest with you. If we're going to talk about, like, what would Jesus do? <laughs> I think Jesus would have the hard conversation about whether Disagree. or not he's exclusive. Disagree. Tell me why. <laughs> he seems like the kind of guy who values... Well, it just depends on which Jesus you're talking about, because there's about seven or eight of them, and there are that's about true. three or four of them that are accepted in the New Testament. So it's, it really depends. Are you talking about the mad Jesus? Are you talking about the um, you know the dis- the disciplined Jesus? Are you talking about the forgiving Jesus, the I'm loving Jesus? I'm talking about the Jesus who hung out with Mary Magdalene. You know, the Jesus. He liked to get fucked. That guy. <laughs> I'm sure that <laughs> he was is, getting it in. He's honest, you know. But that Jesus is very different than the loving the poor Jesus. Maybe. So. So what about you then? What's something that you keep? From, from all of your travails and journeys, like the, from, from what you were raised with, what would you keep? Sense of empathy. Yeah. I, I really think that, you know, I, I give my parents a lot of shit. Yeah. Um, publicly and privately. Yeah. About the, the way that I was raised, their current political worldviews and, and so forth. But if there was definitely one thing that they taught me was to care about other people mm-hmm. in a way that affects the decisions you make. And... That was actually, you know, to your point, that's, that was actually one of the main takeaways I got from the person of Jesus. Yeah. Where, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, theological arguments notwithstanding, I feel like Jesus, as I interpret him from the New Testament, um, he's a pretty empathetic human. Yeah. um, Who... Who valued who valued everyone in, in in a way that was really genuine? Yeah, truly genuine. The story, you know, even from the parable of um, the Good Samaritan to mm-hmm. there's there's tons of examples where Jesus, as I interpret him from the New Testament, was a very empathetic person, and I think that that goes a long way, or that went a long way and continues to go a long way in helping me form whatever this new ethic is. Yeah, because I think. At the end of the day, um, I, I struggled with a lot of identity issues when I left the church because mm-hmm. the purpose, and you might relate to this too, Drew, is my identity and purpose was when I was in the church was what plan does God have for your life? And that was your entire purpose, fulfilling that plan and also understanding that when you die, you're going to heaven, which is a way better life than what you have now. Right. This is all just like kind of a sacrifice to sh- prove totally. that you're worth heaven. So, yeah. so if that's the identity that you have in the church generally, and it's you completely askew that when you deny you know the practical existence of God and any sort of moral framework that's defined by this book, you, you're sort of left to determine why you're like what like not to be cliche, but what is the meaning of life. 
Yeah. Really? 100%. Right? That's the biggest problem. So yeah. the thing that I think helps guide me the most is the fact that even if I can be, even if I <laughs> spiral down a completely nihilistic um, hole where everything is meaningless, nothing, you know, this is all completely bullshit. I can't deny the experience that I'm having in this moment. Yeah. And the fact that I was taught at a very visceral level um, the importance of empathy makes me feel like makes me feel like a good person. Makes me feel like I'm capable of some sort of ethos that people can get behind. And so that helps me define um, it helps me as a guidepost to, to defining my future um, my future period full stop. But also I think that's something from my past that I really embrace mm-hmm. in a very like, like endearing loving way. That I don't even think my parents or the church would even prioritize. Yeah. You know, they, my parents and my church think I'm going to hell. Well, sure. maybe they don't, but they definitely think I'm lost. Mm-hmm. I actually had a contact um, tell me that um, she overheard un- other people talking about me in the church. So I had like a mole on the inside. Mm-hmm. And she said, you wouldn't believe this shit they were talking about you. Like, this guy is off the deep end. He's in San Francisco living the, you know, this depraved life. life. Yeah. yeah. See, personally, I identify as a backslidden heathen who's full of debauchery, so for me, that's fine. You know what's funny? Like, we were talking about, you you guys had asked me about this podcast, and I was like, holy shit, like, a lot of my life is characterized by things that were completely forbidden. (laughs) Like, I, I, you know, weed, alcohol, sex, like, like, all music and parties or whatever, all of it is like... The, the hallmarks of this depraved non-Christian, but I'm, I've never been happier. Right. Yeah. But the point is that I'm, if there is something I can take away to your question, yeah. um, it, it's that sense of like, let's not ignore that there are other sentient beings in the world around you and just be aware of their presence and not only be aware of their presence, but like the impact that you have on them when you're around them. Yeah, and they're you living a different life. Do whatever the hell you want to do. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't care if you. I literally, my, you know, if I were creating a moral code or a law, a system of law or something, whatever you do in private, just do it. Like literally, or or if you do it with consent with other human beings, Jesus Christ. Like if you want to like. You know, guzzle whiskey and like fuck, I, I fuck twenty people in a row. So like a Friday, yeah. Like a, <laughs> no, like do it, right? But I also feel like I'm not. I guess I'm the type of person that takes pride in the fact that I don't. I really try to not make other people feel shitty about themselves. Like I don't. I like I would never want to. Um, you know, I try to, to, to shield my mom from some of the stuff that I do because I don't want to be a shitty person. Yeah. Do I want to sort of like prove a point? Yes. <laughs> do I want to right. sort of maybe change her mind on certain yeah. political things? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But at the same time, she's 70 some years old facing end of life decisions. Am I going to really pull, tr- try my best to like pull the rug yeah. out from under her from a, you know, uh, worldview standpoint? No, that'd be inhumane. Yeah. So I think that there's a certain level of empathy that um, is very important no matter what your stance is on religion or origin, meaning, purpose, destiny, like hedonism, whatever it is, if we can all just be a little bit more sensitive to the people that we interact with, the world would be a, a way better place. And I think that's something that, honestly, Christianity 
for, you know, I, I think you can get that sense from a, a variety of different sources. Mm. But for me, it was um, instilled very at a very young age by both my parents and also this religion called Christianity. Right. If you had predicted at the beginning of this episode that it was going to end with empathy, you're psychic. Because I did not see that coming. How good was that, though, right? Oh my gosh, we... Sometimes I have to stop and consider, you know, how much information are we sharing? How much personal information are we sharing on this podcast? How much is too much? And, and things like that. At the end of the day, though, I think I come to the same conclusion every time. I think it's worth it to share and to share intense, real stories like this, even if it helps one or two people. Like, even if one of you hears this, you had a similar experience, um, you weren't sure to go, where to go with it. I mean, if you hear this and this helps, please let me know. That is literally that is all of the validation that we're looking for. Um, if you heard that, if you listened to this episode and you just enjoyed it, click that like button on whatever podcast app you're using this on. We we're on. I think we're pretty much on everything now. Sound uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, all the all the podcasting things. We're all over there. Give us a like if you if you enjoyed it. If this rings true to you, or if this had some portion of it that rings true to you. Send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Bandthispodcast at gmail.com. Very much looking forward to your feedback. I hope you very much enjoyed this. Don't worry. Part two is coming out very soon. I promise. And we'll see you then. Bye-bye.